Hello, I'm Laura Webster. And I'm James Davis. And on this episode, we'll be looking at some of the recent decisions on business rates and some of the basics of liability orders. Business rates are a significant cost for commercial properties. Liability for business rates can push businesses into insolvency. Liability for rates on an unlet property can compound a landlord's losses on top of the loss of rental income. It is unsurprising that various schemes have been marketed with the promise of resolving rates liability whilst a building is unoccupied. In May of this year, a test case brought by local authorities to challenge two types of these schemes reached the Supreme Court in the case of Hurstwood Properties and Rossendale Borough Council. In both of the schemes being considered by the Supreme Court, a special purpose vehicle was set up which had no assets. The registered owner of the unoccupied property would then grant a short lease to the SPV. The premise of the scheme was that the SPV then became the owner of the property for the purposes of business rates. The shares in the SPV would be owned not by the freeholder, but by a third party, usually the promoter of the scheme. In the first version of the scheme, the SPV is immediately put into a member's voluntary liquidation. The SPV could then take advantage of the exemption under the legislation that no owner, which is a company, is liable for rates whilst being wound up. In this version of the scheme, the longer the liquidation and the longer until the lease is disclaimed by the liquidator, the better. In the dissolution version of the scheme, the SPV is dissolved and its property, including the lease and the liability for business rates, vests in the Crown as Bona Vacantia. The freeholder is relieved from business rates until the end of the lease because, for example, they find a tenant or the Crown realises the lease is vested and disclaims it. Both schemes involved a high degree of artificiality. The SPV was solely to avoid liability to pay business rates. It had no independent activity or existence. The liquidation version had already been branded an abusive process in re-PAG Management Services Limited where a promoter of a scheme had been wound up on public interest grounds. The local authorities brought the test cases against the freeholders, relying on three arguments. Firstly, the leases themselves were shams. Secondly, the arrangements fell foul of the Ramsey principle from revenue law. And thirdly, that in the circumstances they were entitled to pierce the corporate veil as the SPVs were inserted to evade an existing obligation or liability. The freeholders applied to strike out the claims. The freeholders succeeded in part at first instance and in full before the Court of Appeal. By the time matters reached the Supreme Court, it was accepted that the leases were not shams. The Supreme Court had to resolve the remaining issues of the Ramsey Principle and the Corporate Veil. The Ramsey Principle is derived from the revenue case of the same name back in 1982, although as the Supreme Court noted, it has been affirmed and restated in two 21st century cases. It was described by the Supreme Court as not in its essentials being particular to tax, but being based on a purposive approach to the interpretation of legislation. The result of applying the purposive approach has been to disregard transactions or elements of transactions which have no business purpose and have as their sole aim the avoidance of tax. In approaching the purpose of interpretation of Section 45 of the Local Government Finance Act 1988, which dealt with unoccupied properties, the Supreme Court looked at the historic background, including passing mention of the Poor Relief Act of 1601. It recapped the earlier case of John Lang and Son, 1949, which identified that there were four necessary elements for rateable occupation. Number one, actual occupation. Number two, it must be exclusive for the particular purposes of a possessor. Number three, the possession must be of some benefit slash value to the possessor. 
And number four, possession must not be for too transient a period. The Supreme Court also quoted with approval from the case of Hastings Borough Council and Tarmac in 1985 that the relevant statutory provisions had been brought forward because Parliament wanted to stop owners of premises leaving them unoccupied for their own convenience and financial advantage. There was also reference to the intention of Parliament that unoccupied property should be brought back into use by focusing the burden of the rate precisely on the person who had the ability to achieve that objective. Having determined the purpose of the legislation, the Supreme Court then went on to consider the agreed or assumed facts. In particular, the Supreme Court said the leases were not shams, as stated earlier. The leases were entered into solely for the purpose of avoiding liability for business rates. It was not intended that the SPV would make any use of the property or have any role in the property being brought back into use. In fact, it was part of the schemes that they had no ability to do so. The landlord was the one who had the practical ability to decide whether the property remained unoccupied, as they could do this by terminating the lease. It was not intended that any business rates would be paid by the SPV because it had no assets. And finally, an integral part of each scheme involved the misuse of the legal process, namely the law governing dissolution and the insolvency legislation. Applying those unusual circumstances, the Supreme Court concluded that to identify the person entitled to possession in Section 65.1 of the Local Government Act as being the person with an immediate legal right to possession would defeat the purpose of the legislation. The scheme was designed in such a way that the SPV had no real or practical control over whether the property was occupied or not, and such control remained at all times with the landlord. Parliament could not sensibly have intended a person entitled to possession should encompass a company which had no real or practical ability to exercise its legal right to possession, and on which that legal right had been conferred for no purpose other than the avoidance of rates. This approach did not involve ignoring the leases in a way that an element of transaction might be ignored under a Ramsey principle, nor was it founded on the fact that the motive in granting the lease was to avoid paying business rates. Instead, it involved the close examination of the leases in their context and the conclusion that they did not transfer the possession required by the Act as the badge of ownership. If it was not transferred, then it remained with the freeholder. The Supreme Court concluded that there was a tribal issue that the defendants remained liable and the claim should not be struck out. There is no mention in the judgment of the classic case of Street and Mountford, but one can detect a similar approach of looking beyond the wording of the documents agreed by the parties to look at the actual real situation. Having found for the local authorities on the Ramsey point, the Supreme Court then went on to consider the question of the piercing of the corporate veil. Here the local authorities fared less well. They based their argument on the evasion principle set out in the judgment of Lord Sumption in the Preston Petrodale case. Lord Sumption said that the principle applied when a person is under an existing legal obligation or liability or subject to an existing legal restriction which he deliberately evades or whose enforcement he deliberately frustrates by interposing a company under his control. The court may then pierce the corporate veil for the purpose, and only for the purpose, of depriving the company or its controller of the advantage that they would otherwise have obtained by the company's separate legal personality. The first problem the Supreme Court identified was that even if the proposition of law was sound, the defendants were not the shareholders of the SPVs. The Supreme Court were prepared to assume that the defendants were the ultimate beneficial owners. But more fundamentally, the Supreme Court doubted that the evasion principle could ever enable the liability of a company to be extended to its shareholder or controlling entity. 
there was little room for reliance on the evasion principle to impose on the controller of a company a fresh liability incurred by the company as distinct from its controller. In any event, it was clear that there was no scope for the operation of the principle in the current case. If a rating legislation permits a landowner to transfer the ongoing liability for rates by granting a lease to a wholly owned subsidiary created for that purpose, then it would not be an abuse of the corporate personality to do so. The abuse in the case lay in the way the SPV's liability for rates was dealt with through dissolution or liquidation, and there was comprehensive remedies for abusive behaviour of that kind, which did not require piercing the corporate veil. Although this was an appeal against striking out, it's fair to say that the Supreme Court's reasoning on the Ramsey point seems pretty conclusive, and this is likely to provide some certainty both for ratings authorities and freeholders as to how these schemes will be considered in the future. This raises quite an interesting question. What's the actual impact of the Supreme Court's decision, bearing in mind that this was a striking out application, on the solvency of freeholders which have adopted this type of scheme? While some of the claims, and these were test cases before the Supreme Court, there are other claims in the background, run into tens of thousands of pounds, or in some cases, millions of pounds. As you say, the reasoning on the Ramsey point seems pretty conclusive, especially coming from the highest court in England and Wales. And it seems highly arguable that it will have an immediate impact on the duties of directors of those companies that have adopted these schemes, in particular, whether or not now they need to turn to the interests of their creditors rather than the shareholders. One of the aspects that was not considered in Hurstwood was the effect of the disclaimer of the lease itself. This had been considered a few years previously in Schroeder Exempt Property Unit Trust versus Birmingham City Council. In that case, which involved none of the artificiality of transactions in Hurstwood, the tenant under a 10-year lease had assigned the lease guaranteeing the assignee's obligations. The assignee then went into liquidation, and the liquidator disclaimed the lease under Section 178 of the Insolvency Act. The guarantor continued to pay the rent, and the landlord did not physically take possession, and the property went unoccupied. The council then sought to levy rates of approximately 590,000 against the landlord on the basis it was the owner of the whole of the hereditament. The landlord appealed the liability order to the magistrates, who found for the council. The landlord appealed again to the divisional court. The landlord argued that it was not entitled to immediate possession and that by virtue of section 178.4, the only effect of a disclaimer was to end the tenant's liabilities. In rejecting the landlord's appeal, the Divisional Court relied on the House of Lords in Hindcastle and Barbara Attenborough Associates Limited from 1997. A disclaimer determined a lease for all purposes and the reversion was accelerated. It was because of this that Section 1784B gave a statutory deeming provision that the obligations of others, such as guarantors, continued as though the lease had continued. With the lease went all the rights and obligations, such as the tenant's obligation to pay rent and the landlord's right to re-enter. The tenant's right to possession ceased and the landlord acquired an immediate right to possession as a freeholder without the burden of leasehold interests. If or when the landlord retook physical possession, he did not change the position with regard to property rights, but simply brought an end to the contractual rights under the guarantee. Here I'm reminded of the quote, only fools rush in, so think very carefully before exercising the right to re-enter and take physical possession of the property. This has resolved an area of long-standing uncertainty and is likely to be of considerable practical relevance over the next 12 to 18 months, if insolvency increase as the various pandemic protections come to an end. Greater success for ratepayers was achieved in the case of Public Health England and Harlow District Council in April this year. 
the ratepayer, Public Health England, had occupied the premises, the former GlaxoSmithKline building, on a silical basis, occupying for six weeks and then leaving empty for three months to enable it to claim empty property relief for three months before then returning and occupying for another six-week period. The occupation took the form of storing crates of documents. If empty rates relief was available due to this pattern of occupation, it had the effect of reducing the rates payable to approximately one third of what they would have been if the property had been empty for the full period. The local authority refused empty rates relief on the basis the building was not occupied for the six week period. So Public Health England paid the £2.5 million rates bill and then judicially reviewed the decision not to grant the relief. The basis for the judicial review was that the council had applied the wrong legal test when considering the issue of occupation. The court considered the four requirements for occupation by reference to the John Lang case, which I mentioned earlier. The first requirement was that there must be actual occupation, a physical presence on the property. It need not be a substantial presence. The second requirement was that the occupation must be exclusive and not shared with anyone else. It was accepted that this was met in the case. The third requirement was that the possession must have some value or benefit to the possessor, but again this was said to be a low hurdle, but the purpose did however have to go beyond the mere upkeep or development of the building. Finally, the possession could not be for too transient a period, but that was unlikely to be an issue where the use of the property had to be for a period of six weeks. The court rejected the argument that there was an intention by Public Health England to convey an impression different from the reality of its occupation of the premises. It had been open about what it was doing and why. There was no dispute about the facts. The documents in the crates had clearly belonged to Public Health England and it was entitled to store them somewhere. The fact that at the end of the six-week period a benefit would accrue in the form of the exemption did not stop the six weeks themselves from also giving a practical benefit. Actual use of the property, even minimal use, combined with an intention to occupy was sufficient occupation and the motive did not affect this. The use did not need to be substantial, it did not need to be legally required, and could be whimsical or eccentric. Harlow District Council had an alternative argument. If Public Health England had occupied the property for six weeks, then in fact it had always occupied the property, because although the boxes had been removed, table and chairs and various cleaning equipment had remained at the property, and meetings had been held there. This didn't help the council either. Meetings to discuss the future use of the site, upkeep, and maintenance were not rateable occupation. They were about contemplated future use. The alternative argument failed as well. Mr Justice Kerr very helpfully provided two appendices to his judgment. The first of them concerns the oppositions of law when premises are occupied. There are 12 propositions which are useful guidance. The second of the appendices concerns protocols for resolution of disputes about occupation of premises. In particular, on the facts of this case, the dispute came through judicial review and didn't go through the ordinary route or through the magistrate's court. By looking at the protocol for resolution of disputes, it can be seen that ordinarily disputes concerning liability orders should be started in the magistrate's court, which I think is one of the reasons why this was produced. And finally, and briefly, liability orders. For historic reasons, these are obtained in the magistrate's court. A rate pair is summons, and if liability is disputed, its trial is ordered, which may take place before lay justices, or if it involves more complicated issues of law, it may be allocated to a district judge brackets, crime brackets. Difficulties arise if, for whatever reason, the summons is not responded to. The liability order will be made in the ratepayer's absence. 
as the proceedings are in the magistrate's court, the CPR provisions for setting aside default judgments do not apply. And quite often, unfortunately, ratepayers only engage once enforcement has started, often down the insolvency route. This was the situation of a case of our Brighton and Hove justices against Brighton and Hove Council, where the ratepayer, Mr Hamden, had been served with a bankruptcy petition. He applied back to the magistrates to set aside the orders. They did this, although there was no record of their reasoning and a dispute arose by way of judicial review as to whether there was a jurisdiction to do this. It was held on the judicial review that magistrates had an inherent power to set aside a liability order made in their court that had been decided in the case of Liverpool City Council versus Pleroma Distribution Limited from 2002. However, the jurisdiction which was held to exist in that case could not be exercised simply because the defendant disputed his liability to pay the national non-domestic rates in question. The existence of a genuine and arguable dispute as to that liability was a necessary but not sufficient precondition. The power of a magistrate's court to set aside a liability order was an exceptional one to be exercised cautiously. A magistrate's court should not set aside a liability order unless it was satisfied, in addition to there being a genuine and arguable dispute as to the defendant's liability for the rates in question. That one, the order was made as a result of a substantial procedural error, defect or mishap. And two, the application to the justices for the order to be set aside was made promptly after the defendant learned that it had been made or had noticed that an order might have been made. In most cases, it would have to be shown that the liability order was unlawful or made in excess of jurisdiction or in ignorance of a significant fact concerning the procedure of which the justices should be aware. The procedural mishap might not be the fault of the court or of the local authority, but a failure of the defendant to attend when he knew there would be a hearing would not of itself satisfy this requirement. Promptness in this context, where the defendant was not required to do more than to write a letter stating why he sought to reopen the decision to make a liability order, required action within days, or at most a few weeks, not months, and certainly not as much as a year jurisdiction to reopen a liability order would be unavailable to a defendant who delayed in circumstances which he had noticed that an order might have been made, although he had not received a copy or been informed that an order had been made. As with default judgments under the CPR, therefore, the need to act promptly is paramount. I've also found that the attitude of local authorities varies from area to area. And in some cases, even though liabilities have been outstanding for some considerable time, local authorities have still been willing to consider evidence that the property was left at the relevant time and the freeholder is not liable. It's always worth a try. That brings us to the end of this episode of Brief Tapes. We hope you found this a useful summary of the recent developments on business rates. For now, it's goodbye from us. Goodbye.